I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. We've spent the last three episodes with Donna. Now we're going back to Brett. And so the whiplash rhythm of this podcast continues. I'm Lillian Alec, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Brett returns from NRT, as in non-resident term, and LA, as in Los Angeles, where he compared and combined social agendas with Bennington classmate and fellow Angelino, Mark Norris. Mark, you'll remember, listeners, and how can you forget since I'm constantly reminding you, is the roommate of Jonathan Leatham. I interviewed Mark Norris for my Esquire piece on Bennington, class of 86. Of Brett in that 1982 to 1983 NRT, Mark said this, quote, Brett invited me to a party his high school girlfriend had over that Christmas break. It was horrible. It was at a mansion in Beverly Hills, and there were black waiters and kids getting drunk while their parents sipped cocktails by the pool. So Brett spends his NRT at blowouts with Mark Norris. But Brett spends a lot more of his NRT at his desk alone. And it's over the course of those nine weeks that he writes Less Than Zero. Yes, he started writing Less Than Zero back in 1980, when he was a 16-year-old junior at the Buckley School, and has been writing it ever since draft after draft after draft. Yet those drafts weren't quite drafts. We're closer to jottings or sketches or notes. Now, though, he's written an actual novel. The very thing that Brett's Buckley English teacher, Steve Robbins, said that Less Than Zero lacked, it now has. A plot. Or, really, a structure. And Bennington, more specifically NRT, is that structure. The story begins when Clay, the 18-year-old protagonist, on winter break from Camden, the small liberal arts college in rural New England where he's a freshman, goes home to LA. It ends when winter break is over and he returns to school. And all of the book's action takes place during this stretch of time, i.e. during the stretch of time that 18-year-old freshman Brett wrote the book. And it's not only Bennington that makes it into the narrative, it's Bennington people as well no matter that the principal characters, Clay, Blair, and Julian, are all Buckley people. For instance, there's Mark Norris, called Daniel in the book. Brett even gives Daniel the stitches in Mark's hand. Right before leaving campus, Mark had an accident with a storm door, cut himself on the glass. And Daniel goes to the Christmas party of Clay's ex-high school girlfriend, Blair, with Clay, just as Mark went to the Christmas party of Brett's ex-high school girlfriend, Julie Foreman, with Brett. In fact, it's one of the first scenes in the novel. From the audiobook of Less Than Zero. I bring Daniel to Blair's party that night, and Daniel is wearing sunglasses and a black wool jacket and black jeans. He's also wearing black suede gloves because he cut himself badly on a piece of glass a week earlier in New Hampshire. We're standing at the door of Blair's house in Beverly Hills, and Daniel complains that the gloves are sticking to the wires and are too tight. Mark, you'll also remember, listeners, and how can you forget since I'm constantly reminding you, is the former love interest of Donna Tartt and the current love interest of Brick Smith, who is now at her mother's house in Chicago, having dropped out of Bennington over NRT. Bricks. I mean, I left school in December, and there were rumors about me being pregnant. 
which I was, with Mark Norris's baby. I mean, it could have been one or two others. I'm sorry to have to admit, but I'm pretty sure it was Mark's. And because Briggs is much on Mark's mind, and because Mark is much in Brett's company, this detail makes it into the book, too. Brett and I discuss. Less than zero. The first draft of that was begun in December of 82, and that's when I hung out with Mark Norris. That was the only time I think I hung out with Mark Norris. I mentioned to Brett Briggs' pregnancy, which at first doesn't ring a bell, and then does. A great big clanging one. Right. Okay, so that's why they're less than zero. Yes, I write about Daniel talking about maybe she got pregnant. It wasn't even was telling me this in 83 or 82 or whenever. And I put it into less than zero. Ah, it comes back. From the audiobook of Less Than Zero. Daniel calls me on the day before Christmas and tells me that Vanden, a girl he saw at school in New Hampshire, is pregnant. He remembers that at some party before he left, she had mentioned something about it, half-jokingly. And Daniel got this letter from her a couple of days ago, and he tells me that Vanden might not be coming back, that she might be starting a punk rock group in New York called The Spider's Web, that it might or might not be Daniel's kid, that she might or might not get an abortion, get rid of it. He says that the letter wasn't too clear. Which is, more or less, exactly what happened. Here's the, quote, real Vanden, Bricks. I did not want it to be Mark Norris's baby. I have to tell you that much. But in any case, it was nobody's baby because it's now back in baby land, ready to be someone else's. So Lisa came with me. I'm breaking in with a parenthetical. Lisa, as in Lisa Fader, Bricks' best friend. I asked Lisa to come for the non-resident term to form a band in Chicago, which we did. But literally within three weeks, I had met Marky Smith. And within three months, I was living in Manchester and playing in the fall. Marky Smith, as in the British singer-songwriter. And the fall, as in the seminal post-punk working-class British band led by Marky Smith. Ian Gittler remembers how head-spinningly fast Briggs' ascent was. Oh, and excuse the background noise. Ian and I were at a coffee shop, empty when we arrived, packed by the time we were in mid-conversation. So Briggs and Lisa Fetter asked me to give them bass and guitar lessons because they wanted to start a band. I gave them a lesson and gave them assignments. And one week later, when it was time for the next lesson, the other girl hadn't done anything. And Briggs had learned all of the other girl's lessons, learned all of her lessons, and wrote 11 songs. And three months later, dropped out of college, moved to England, married Marky e. Smith, right. and literally was getting written about by Robert Palmer in The Times months yeah. later. Now, this is slightly in the weeds, but so what? I like it in the weeds. Briggs. In Less Than Zero, the character Vanden is starting a band in New York called Spider's Web. So I was quite flattered that Brett had sort of, um, (laughs) I don't even know whatever celebrated me in this character. So when I was in the fall, I also did a solo band called Adult Net. I thought, wouldn't it be fun to get this reference in to the character that Brett created about me So Adult Net, Net, like a web, and on the Adult Net album was a song called Spin This Web, which is a direct reference back to Vanden and Spider's Web and Bennington and Brett and all of that. So Rick Smith is the first of the Bennington stars of this particular era to translate to real world star. She will not, of course, be the last. Okay, so it's the new term, the spring term, spring of 83. About to begin is Nick Dobonko's fiction workshop. No more welcoming to freshmen than Joe McGinnis's nonfiction workshop was. Here's Brett. For some reason, that first month at Bennington, I had entree into a lot of faculty parties that my friends just didn't. I found myself at Nick Del Banco's house, him schmoozing around with me and his wife, his kids, a lot of other faculty members, smattering of students. I don't know if Joe had talked to him and said, we've got something very serious here. 
And Nick was the head of the literature department. So he wanted to know who this kid was. And here's Nick. You really have to be slower than I was or am not to notice that degree of talent. Brett again. In the spring of 83, he really took me under his arm, and I was kind of the star of his fiction workshop. Now, in episode five, I observe that Bennington has its share of glamorous teachers, Nick Del Blanco among them. Here's Nancy Morowitz, class of 86, and a student of Nick's on Nick. I had a little crush on him because he had a deep, sonorous voice. It was very resonant. It was great to listen to. It was kind of sexy. I'd read a couple of his novels, and of course that also meant reading the About the Author page. I knew he'd been born in Europe. Father was an art dealer, and you know, there's just this sense of a kind of deeply cultured, multilingual families of a certain kind in New York. And my impression was also that Carly Simon's family was the same. Nancy is invoking singer-songwriter Carly Simon because Nick was an early boyfriend of Simon's. And, according to rumor, much circulated at Bennington, Simon's 1972 classic, You're So Vain, was written about Nick. Mostly it wasn't. Mostly it was written about Warren Beatty. But partly it was. The apricot scarf alluded to in the song's lyrics is a Nick accessory. You tell him, Carly. In fact, in Janet Jackson's 2001 R&B hip-hop song, Son of a Gun, which samples You're So Vain, Carly Simon acknowledges the truth of this rumor. You can hear her rapping in the background. The apricot scarf was worn by Nick. Nancy Morowitz again. So I can remember an article, I'm pretty sure it was published in Esquire. There was like a huge photo in the article of bulletin board in the office of some editor or possibly agent. But yeah, it was an enormous constellation of post-it notes of who mattered in the literary world. I can remember peering at that photo. I don't know that I took a magnifying glass to it, but almost just to see where people were and then seeing his name on the wall, Nick Del Banco's name on the wall and see, being kind of delighted. Well, this is my teacher. And also sort of <laughs> a little bit surprised that he was sort of, he wasn't in the red hot center. He was sort of maybe more peripheral. And Nick, in Brett's opinion, is as vital to his development as Joe McGinnis. And listeners, I apologize. In this next bit, you're going to hear my braying laugh, an awful sound. Ignore it as best you can. I did a major work where I wrote two or three of my best stuff, and Nick was so smart about it. I remember sending him drunkenly a fawning email in the late 90s where I said, you know, it was you, not Joe McGinnis, who pushed my fiction and really supported my fiction. I mean, Nick was great to me. But Nick was also the kind of teacher who, the last class of our writing workshop, he decided to read three hours from his new book. Okay. We would take a break at the 90-minute mark, and then he goes, is everyone here? Is everyone here? Chapter four. <laughs> his work in progress. And so, um, uh, yeah, I loved him. He was very protective of me, and he really wanted me to be a symbol of Bennington. I really think he was invested in my success to shine a light on Bennington. Just as Donna chose not to apply to Joe McGinnis's nonfiction workshop, though as a sophomore she's eligible, she chooses not to apply to Nick's fiction workshop. Something to note. Okay, on to Brett's sophomore year. The first semester is a crucial one, and yet difficult to account for. Brett. Something else was going on with me in fall of 83, and I really wasn't around. I was kind of lost in my own um, thing with Less Than Zero and writing that book. was kind of living out the rules of attraction. There was a lot of autobiographical elements in that book that, I was, that were playing out in the fall of 83. So Brett is writing one novel, Less Than Zero, while enacting another, The Rules of Attraction. The Rules of Attraction is Brett's second novel and his most explicitly Bennington-ish. He won't start working on it until 1985, which is the year he'll set it in, 
though, as he just said, it's based on events that occur in 1983. Rules takes place at Brett's fictional Bennington College, i.e. Camden College, where Lesson Zero's Clay is a student. Clay will make several memorable cameos in Rules, but is not a main character. The main characters are Sean Bateman, Paul Denton, and Lauren Hine. Paul's pining for Sean, is pining for Lauren, is pining for Victor. You get the idea. Unrequited Love City. Paul Denton is the Brett stand-in, and Sean Bateman is modeled on a classmate of Brett's named Phil Holmes. Here's Paula Powers, a friend to both Brett and Phil, on Phil. What I remember about Phil Holmes is that he always wore a black leather jacket, like black jeans and boots, and he had a motorcycle. And to me, kind of seemed like a loner, like he's coming and going on his motorcycle. In Rules, the Brett character, Paul, and the Phil character, Sean, are having a secret affair. Or maybe they're not. It's entirely possible that the only sex happening is happening in Paul's head. The relationship between Brett and Phil is every bit as charged, every bit as ambiguous. Brett. My freshman year, I was really kind of just like all over the place. And then I met Phil Holmes. It's the fall of 83. We didn't hang out with anybody else. We just hung out with each other. Yes, a very tortured situation. But not then. It was really quite wonderful. I mean, it was just this new friend and we were, it was one of those weird things that I'd never experienced again, where you meet someone, you immediately go off with them. Don't talk to anybody for three months. And it was just a constant hanging out endlessly for that entire term. Others pick up on the fervency of the connection. Paula Powers. He and Brett got to be really, really close and spent a ton of time together, just always together. And so, of course, people speculated that maybe it was more than friendship. So is it a romance with Phil Holmes or not? Brett never answers this question directly, but he does answer it indirectly. Listen to our exchange. Men do this a lot. Men think about all the ones they didn't get. And so that's what I was like. I was haunted by two or three straight boys I probably liked. Didn't happen. And definitely Rules of Attraction is an inspiration for that. And that's kind of what the book is about. Clearly, or rather opaquely, the relationship is not a romance. And Phil Holmes is a heartbreak for Brett. But perhaps it's the pain of rejection that fuels him to rewrite Lesson Zero, which he does over the next NRT, the 1983-1984 NRT. Brett and I discuss. When I looked at my hundreds and hundreds of pages that I was going to call from, put together this Lesson Zero book, I got cold feet. And everything that Joe loved about my stuff, I didn't trust. So I did a version of the book that is in past tense, third person. Clay walked to the beach. He was feeling strange that day because of the, okay. Okay. I thought, because Joe was talking about publication already and he already got me an agent. And I was thinking, well, I'm gonna write what most most people write and not really trusting myself. It ended up being a great mistake anyway. So I, I present this thing to Joe. He's like, what the hell have you done? You just yeah. made it so generic. It's like everything yeah. is lost. Yeah. And I said, well, what should I do? Go through the thing and put it back in first person, yeah. present tense. The immediacy is gone. The tension of it is lost completely. Yeah. And it's earnest and blah, blah, blah. Uh, look, I was kind of shocked. I kind of knew that was might have been the thing, but I wasn't prepared for it. Mm-hmm. I was hurt a little bit, but not enough for it to make a difference. And I went through, I think... And, in a week or whatever. Boom, 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 boom. Fat kept melting away mm-hmm. from the pages. Everything kept melting away until I had what was a 400-page book became a very concise 200-page book. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. While Brett is working on getting Lesson Zero into shape to submit to editors, he's also attending Nick Del Banco's fiction workshop for the second time. In the spring of 84, there's a new lineup. Nick. Brett. Ellis was a star in the class right away, but there were other stars. I felt that way about, say, Jill Eisenstadt. I felt that way about David Lipsky. And they were all in the same room together. Jill Eisenstadt, class of 85, is already a junior. Up until this point, she's been focused on music. Jill is an accomplished flautist and is only now switching her attention to prose. There's no question that it's Nick who's in charge of this workshop. Brett's approval, however, is equally essential. Jill. I wrote some terrible, I'm sure, story that was just the class trashed. In particular, Brett said really harsh things. And I remember just going home to my room and crying and crying. And at some point when I like got over feeling sorry for myself, I realized that like what he said was exactly true. And then I just went to lunch, sat down with him, and I feel like we've been friends ever since. David Lipsky, whom you met briefly in episode one, well, meet properly now, is a freshman. David's at Bennington, but only by mistake. He explains. So my mom is a very well-known painter, and she had had one of the most successful debuts of any painter in like, I don't know, a decade or two. She had sold... I think two or 300 canvases during her first year or two. And so my family had moved out of the city in the early 70s, and they moved to Bennington because there were a lot of painters there. Fun if semi-stray fact, David's mother, Pat Lipsky, was the on-again, off-again girlfriend of the gallerist, Dick Bellamy, father of Brett's freshman year roommate, Miles Bellamy. Vermont is but an interlude for the Lipskys. They'll move back to New York a few short years later, David, on his high school. I went to a school called Stuyvesant where the only thing that mattered day to day was what college you'd get into. And so I just couldn't be shed of that fast enough. So um, I went to Bennington and I thought it'd be nice to be in this town that I had loved for the two years that we owned a farm there. And then I got there and um, son, of a, son of a bitch, if I didn't miss all those shitty grade-grubbing kids. It was like, these people are not hustling the professors for recommendations. They're not asking for extra homework. They don't have that weird buzz of shared unimaginative ambition, which was the basic buzz at my high school. And the sick thing, it wasn't just that I had lost four years to that as a student. I missed it when it wasn't around. I thought I... I have to get out of here. I miss being around people who I don't like. David sets his sights on Brown. Now, David may be young, but he's already seasoned. He's been granted a full scholarship to Bennington by the National Foundation for Advancement in the Arts. And though he wants out of Bennington and fast, he doesn't intend to waste his time there. Nancy Morowitz on David. He certainly made a splash. I mean, he was cute in that sort of owlish, studious boy way. And, you know, he very often wore a tweed blazer with a sweater underneath it. He looked so different from most of the boys there. He was someone who was thought to be a prodigy in certain respects. But he was also kind of self-promoting. I think I heard about David from David, you know. 
Brett is a rite of passage for Jill. So he will be for David. Brett came to find me after winter break because I was the second person to get into Nick Delbanco's workshop as a freshman. The first person to get into Nick Delbanco's workshop as a freshman was Brett. It was like a neat, sort of neatly designed story. Brett was like, he was cool. Like he was magnetic. He was eye-taking. One of those things where we would go back to your dorm and you would be like, uh, you know, I'd love to continue this conversation, but I don't want to seem too forward about pushing this friendship. In a way, it's a flirtatious sort of energy. So when I met him, I think he was wearing um, sort of a, a woolish or a tweedish sort of overcoat with a t-shirt and tree torns, sunglasses indoors. So like someone who had flown in on a whim from Los Angeles and just was dressed for whatever the season was at LAX. And some friendly person had picked him up and had handed him an overcoat. And I remember looking at him and thinking, I really like this person, and I am not going to understand this person. David's language is the language of infatuation, even if he's heterosexual. Part of the excitement around Brett, aside from him being very talented, was that shimmer of darkness in his vibe. Brett and Amy, they were always playing Murder by Numbers, which was a police B-side. That for whatever reason, Brett, who liked violence, like, he would play that. Amy, as in Amy Herskovitz, class of 85, Brett's close friend. Like, if you were at the cafe for like an hour or two having a Jenny Pale or something like that, there would be sexual healing, which was a Marvin Gaye track. Or there would be whatever top 40 shit people were playing on the jukebox. And then you knew when Brett and Amy had come in when Murder by Numbers played, and then when it kept playing. And David's understanding of Brett is, I'd argue, on the order of a lover's divination. Meaning, he sees Brett more keenly, more perceptively, than others do. Said a thief to catch a thief, said a literary enfant terrible to catch a literary enfant terrible. There was... um, Not exhaustion, because Brett was always energetic, but there was a very compelling absence, a very charismatic absence to Brett. He just wanted to come off sort of doomed and unfocused in the way of Maria in that great Gideon novel, Play It Isn't Lights. And kind of however casual he seemed, like he was disciplined as a young writer. And he was reading and working like crazy, but he did for some reason want to come off as somebody who had seen too much and felt too much and just was taking a rest cure somewhere. And weirdly enough, he was taking his rest cure in the both supportive and then darkly competitive world of the writing program at Bennington College. In terms of their artistic intensity, the scope of their ambitions, Brett and David are a perfect match. They're barely out of high school and are already conducting themselves like the cool-eyed professionals they're destined to become. He was the maybe the first person I'd met my age who loved books and was just trying to figure out how to write them, who was looking at people's styles, looking at people's careers, doing with writers kind of what other kids do, like with baseball cards, saying, when did they first publish? How did they first get published? And Brett talks to David in a way he doesn't talk to anybody else. He talks shop. And I remember once he kind of took me aside and we were talking about fiction and I was talking about how I loved uh, Nabokov, how I loved Ann Beatty. So he got a little impatient and he said, look, everything has been tried already. That domestic comedy that you like, that's been done already. And, you know, stream of consciousness, that's been done already. James Joyce has done that already, right? The, the Pynchon Phantasmagoria, that's been tried and a lot of people didn't like reading it. But there is one thing that hasn't been done yet and that's like just sensationalism. Like giving the reader sensations that they don't know they want and they can't have access to. And that's the kind of thing that I'm gonna try to do. The prescience takes your breath away, or maybe gives you chills. It's still that spring semester, the spring of 84, 
when Brett decides Lesson Zero is ready to go. Joe McGinnis agrees and sends the manuscript to his agent, Sterling Lord. Joe's widow, Nancy Doherty. Joe had very mixed feelings about helping Brett, but in a way he felt it was inevitable. He just saw this for Brett, so he thought the best thing he could do was guide Brett to the best people, the best agent, give him the best advice about shaping the book, but he couldn't stop this from happening. It was like the train is going down the track, and the best thing is to try help it to go in the right direction at the right speed. And Joe was worried about him. He was rooting for him, and he was worried about him because he knew that it was going to be an overwhelming experience. And it was. Less Than Zero soon makes its way from Sterling Lord to Morgan Entrican at Simon & Schuster. Morgan. What I saw with Less Than Zero was something that came out of the existentialism in France. I mean, my reading of that book was sort of a kind of stripping away, I mean, it's sort of semiological, stripping away of meaning. And it's like, you know, the practitioners or what you would look at if, would, would be the, the French nouveau roman novelists like um, uh, Rob Rier, Natalie Sarro, Michel Boutour, Claude Simon. And it was like, he wasn't even really familiar with those writers or that theory, but that he almost was like a manifestation of it because he was like, they were kind of predicting, you know, the modern life in the future and, and brought from Los Angeles and sort of that world. Less than zero as the apotheosis of the anti-Balzacian, très avant-garde, nouveau roman, that is, new novel, which rejects plot because plots aren't found in nature, rejects character because people are an intricate series of gestures and poses and it's ludicrous to assign them proper names, and rejects linear narrative because time is infinite and manifold. And Brett as the idiot savant from Hooterville, America, who puts this theory into practice, unwittingly solving the problem that's been stumping egghead Frenchies since the 50s? Well, why not? In spite of Morgan's passionate enthusiasm and elevated line of patter, Less Than Zero is a tough sell at SNS. Morgan. What you did was you circulated the manuscript and there was a cover sheet. And so people would write their comments on the cover sheet. Herman Golub, he was one of the senior editors there, very good editor, and was a friend of mine. Very amusing, and uh, but he didn't like this book. He wrote on the sheet for less than zero, if there's a market for callow, fragmentary fiction about rich, self-indulgent, coke-sniffing, cock-sucking zombies, then let's buy it. SNS does believe there's a market for callow, fragmentary fiction about rich, self-indulgent, coke-sniffing, cock-sucking zombies. SNS just doesn't believe it all that strongly. They buy less than zero for $5,000, about as low a price as you can pay. Still, wow. Brett is getting his novel published by a major house at 20 years old. Brett dedicates the book to Joe McGinnis, which leaves Nick Del Blanco feeling snubbed. Brett and I discuss... Nick Del Banco was a bit peeved when the book was not dedicated to him. It was like the day of or the day after everyone knew that the book had been bought. It spread throughout campus. I sure. saw people coming to my my room going, did you just sell a book? Yeah. And I said, yeah. Just said, oh, my God, so-and-so told me. And I remember late that afternoon standing near the farm, uh, the barn, yeah. which is the faculty offices were. And stand there talking to Joe, and we see Nick's like, Jaguar. He spots me through the windshield and then pretends to go rev the engine. Brad here mimes someone revving an engine, then stomps his foot down on an imaginary gas pedal and hunches over an imaginary steering wheel, Cruella de Vil style. I asked Brett if Nick was teasing. Teasing, but I could tell that it wasn't, and then he left. He was very tight. So, congratulations, young man. This is a splendid thing. We're all going to have to have a celebratory dinner. Then he left, and Joe said, Oh, God, he hates me, and he hates you too. Nick disputes one minor point the car he was driving. I think it was an Alfa Romeo. Brett asks David Lipsky to read the manuscript. Yeah, people talked about his shyness. It wasn't a bullshit thing. The air around Brett was blushing when he was giving me his manuscript to read. He had worked very hard on it. He had hopes for it, and he really wanted me to read it. So he gave it to me, and I probably read it over a day or two. And then we, I went to talk to him, and there is that weird thing 
which is when someone gives you a manuscript to read, you're like the most important person in their world for like the 10 to 90 minutes you'll talk about their book with them. If you have just given someone a long manuscript to read and there's a disaster and you can rescue your parents or the family's beloved pet or the person who just read it but hasn't told you their opinion, it's probably that last person who you're going to rescue, right? And so you can feel that when you're walking with someone to a common room on a northern Vermont campus to talk about their book. David's reaction to the book is complicated. Less than zero. It's really good writing. But like Brett talking about the soullessness and just the, the soulless materialism of what people who are between the ages of 15 and 25 in that period were like, he was playing up to older people's idea of what the generation is like. They weren't sure what we were going to be like. And then here's this book, which is confirming their suspicions. So when I sat down, I was like, look, this is really good and it's publishable. No question. They will publish it and it will probably make the list. But if you publish this 10 years from now, you'll be embarrassed. And uh, he published it. And I was embarrassed. Brett's recollection of this conversation, by the way, differs from David's. David Lipsky was a classmate of mine at Bennington. And he was one of the first people to read Less Than Zero after it was accepted by a publisher. And he came back with the manuscript and said, you're not serious, are you? I said, what do you mean? He said, you can't, can't have this published. And I said, why not? What are your parents going to think? So both David and Brett remember David telling Brett not to publish Less Than Zero because of their parents. But in David's memory, he objects to the book on the grounds that it panders to the fears of their parents and their parents' generation. And in Brett's memory, David objects to the book on the grounds that it validates the fears of their parents and their parents' generation. Basically, each is accusing the other of sucking up to mom and dad. If Brett and David can't love each other, they're going to hate each other. Nick's workshop turns into a war zone. So the last half of that semester was the most unpleasant workshop atmosphere that I've been in. When they get bad, they're very much like a competitive reality show like Survivor, where there are alliances underneath what seems like the normal surface of it. And so the workshop that Brett and I were in just split along those lines. I remember that Amy Beth Herskowitz, who was like one of <laughs> one of the 12 avatars of Vishnu, she was one of the avatars of Brett. Nancy Morowitz is in that workshop. It was very quickly a really intimidating atmosphere. And there was a sense of, I think, of overt competition between David and Brett. I can remember Jill Eisenstadt being someone who was also kind of a bright light in the class along with the the two of them, which, you know, might have been tough for her. I don't know. I mean, it's striking to me, too, that it was, my impression of it was that it was such a a male-dominated class in a place that was otherwise predominantly female. Still. I felt like I didn't make the grade or whatever. It was competitive for sure. So Jill's too self-effacing to realize she's even in the mix. Or maybe she's just too smart to raise her head, risk getting it shot off. Needless to say, Brett does not take David's advice regarding Lesson Zero. He spends the summer of 84 at Bennington, putting the finishing touches on the book. In fact, the very last time he edits it is in his dorm room in Bingham House. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. 
From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Brett's book is slated to come out in the spring of 85, but he still has to go to school in the fall of 84. As he begins his junior year, Quintana Rue Dunn, the adopted daughter of his hero, Joan Didion, and the childhood friend of his Buckley girlfriend, Julie Foreman, begins her freshman year. Brett can scarcely contain himself. He and I discuss. The president of the student body was a good friend of mine, actually one of the girls that I had, one of the few women I've had sex with, just to let you know. She was also the campus coke dealer ex-boyfriend would come up, mm-hmm. a lot of coke for Friday night and Saturday, and they'd be cutting it in her room. And, and, and we were friends, and we were Didian fanatics. Um, and that, really, our first moment with Quintana was we offered her drugs. We sat around in, uh, in an apartment on campus, I think my friend's room, and talked with her, just talked to her all night. Oh, God, I, I think we just bombarded her with a lot of questions. And then she asked a lot of questions about Bennington. We told her, and of course it's all very chatty and goes on and on. But yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a moment. A rumor goes around that Brett stole Quintana's underwear that night. I get wind of it during my research for the Esquire piece. I call Brett to fact check. His response. I took her underwear? I do not remember doing that. Uh, it sounds vaguely, vaguely, vaguely familiar, but I don't remember that. But I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, hi, and uh, sure. The maybe yes, maybe no panty raid notwithstanding, Brett and Quintana do become real friends. Brett talks to me about Quintana. Very rough featured, peasant featured in a way. Not pretty and... Um, had a kind of awkward personality, uh, no bullshit, could catch pretension pretty damn fast. But, you know, there had to be, I sensed a kind of like resentment of this holy figure her mother was to so many people. I don't think she got it. But it was a privileged life. Her parents were rock stars, and there was a family. There was a wide array of friends. There was a big, like, net there. Uh, she wasn't abandoned or on her own, maybe in another way, but I, I just sense a kind of uh, a frustration, let's put it that way. You know, as I talked about in the footage that was never used for the Jim Didion documentary... FYI, the Joan Didion documentary is 2017's The Center Will Not Hold, directed by Joan's nephew, Griffin Dunn. Griffin emailed me something. We took all of your stuff out and a lot of other people's stuff, too, because I just realized that I wanted to be a love letter. And I, you know, he encouraged me, and I did. I went on record, and I was talking about Katana's fucking drug use and the heavy drinking. And, of course, it was the drinking, and I don't think the cocaine. I don't think she was, like, a full-blown drug addict, but she was a full-blown... Drink her alcohol. Yeah. You can't die the way she did without that. She was drinking. Quintana Rue Dunn died in 2005 at age 39 of acute pancreatitis. Over NRT, NRT 1984 to 1985, Brett sends off two letters. One is to Jill Eisenstadt. He tells her this about Less Than Zero. Quote, I hear the cover of the book is really terrible. Lime green lettering... Wayfarers, paint splatters, pastel colors, cigarettes, pills, and a tagline that reads, a novel about the children of Beverly Hills. A tagline that my editor and I are trying desperately to cut out. He's right to bitch about the tagline, which he does succeed in excising, but he's wrong about the cover itself. Ian Gitler. That cover definitely had impact. I mean, this is pre-internet. This is barely MTV. I'm not sure that there were too many iconic pairs of sunglasses in 1985. There was Jack Nicholson's pair soles. I'm remembering Jean-Luc Godard in a beret and a pair of sunglasses, 
during the making of Breathless. And Elvis Costello's. Costello wears them on the cover of his 1981 album, Trust, which is hanging on the wall of Brett's dorm room and which is remembered so vividly by Jonathan Lethem. It was the poster from Trust, Elvis Costello's fourth LP. And if you Google it, you'll see Elvis Costello's looking out over his sunglasses. The Elvis Costello nod is fitting since the title of Brett's book is the title of an Elvis Costello tune. Less Than Zero is the eighth track on Costello's 1977 album, My Aim Is True. Back to Ian. The idea of touch points or visual cues, these were things that you learned from seeing pictures of the people that influenced you. And suddenly with MTV, there was this democratization of fashion and the concept of personal style really changed because suddenly everyone could kind of look like their favorite icons of culture. Wayfarers certainly took on a different meaning once Less Than Zero was published. Part of it had to do with the fact that counterfeit materials being generated in China and sold on the streets of Canal Street, Brett's book was synonymous with $3 Wayfarer knockoffs. And he was young and he was handsome and he wore these glasses and it really did become a thing. Ian is perhaps overstating the case a bit. Don Johnson is wearing Wayfarers in Miami Vice, which debuts in 1984, as is Judd Nelson in one of the biggest movies of 1985, The Breakfast Club. But his point is taken. The Less Than Zero cover and Brett's look seem emblematic of the decade and of Generation X just starting to announce itself. The other letter Brett sends over that NRT is to Paula Powers. He writes, quote, I am nervous and excited and depressed about the release of the book. Depressed because there is so much I want to change and cut, and now it's too late. Brett's anxiety is justified, though not for the reason he thinks. Here's Jerry Howard, a young editor at Penguin in 1985, on Less Than Zero's precarious pre-publication position. The book was signed up by Morgan Entrican. It wasn't overly popular with the older set at Simon & Schuster. And um, I think somewhere in the middle, didn't Morgan go off and buy Grove Press or something like that? And then I think Bob Asahina was assigned to it. Morgan Endrickin does indeed leave SNS to start his own imprint. An unfortunate development for Brad because Morgan, a brilliant editor, but also a bit of a playboy and wild man, appears ideally suited to Less Than Zero. Taking over from Morgan on Less Than Zero is Bob Asahina, a distinctly less promising match. Jerry Howard on Bob Asahina. The weird thing about Bob Asahina is that a very smart guy, but very politically conservative, Bob Asahina really made his bones, not with Brett Easton Ellis, but with the Book of Virtues. The Book of Virtues, subheading A Treasury of Great Moral Stories, is by William J. Bennett, Secretary of Education under President Reagan, soon to be Director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy under President George H.W. Bush. And Asahina would later edit the self-help classic, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, by Stephen R. Covey. So, Lesson Zero is orphaned, then left in the care of a man who, in terms of taste, interests, inclinations, seems almost comically out of sympathy with it. And yet, it receives the nurturing it needs. From Asahina, an intelligent and conscientious editor, whatever his political and personal views, and from another source as well. Again, Jerry Howard. Bonnie Nadell, an assistant in the subsidiary rights department, she was the person who answered the phone for Susan Campbell. I met her at some party for a... SNS book, but I but I liked her, and we ended up having lunch, and we were talking about less than zero, and she let slip that they were having problems with the ending. A 23-year-old Bonnie Nadell has just been given a copy of Less Than Zero by her boss, Susan Camel. Bonnie takes over the story. I read it, and I loved it, right? Loved it. 
But I also thought, oh, it's really dark at the end. Like it just sort of ends with like the characters overdosing and like bad things and all this stuff, right? And I was like, God, this is just a little too bleak. I think he should move a section that was somewhere in the middle of the book to the end so that it has a more optimistic, slightly more hopeful resolution. And so I, I wrote this whole explanation of why I thought the book needed to change. I gave it to Susan, and then it all happened. I never talked to Brett directly. I don't even know to this day if he knows where this editorial note came from. The optimism Bonnie speaks of is very faint, the barest glimmer. Clay and Blair remain estranged, Julian lost in addiction and degradation. But that optimism is there. All of it contained in the novel's final three words, after I left. Which means Clay makes it out of L.A. He escapes. That Bonnie's suggestion is taken signifies two things to Jerry Howard. A, Bonnie Nadell is very smart. And B, less than zero. Wasn't high up on the list of things to think about at Simon & Schuster. It's very unusual for a very junior member of the company, not even in the editorial department, to have had that kind of input on editing a book. Simon & Schuster doesn't seem ready for Lesson Zero. Ready or not, though, here it comes. Publication date, May 16th, 1985. Brett. It was happening the last... um a month of my junior term because the book was getting reviewed and there was a huge, huge thing in the Village Voice that came out like a couple weeks before publication and it got everyone super excited and set the ball rolling. That was the beginning and the end of something. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Donna. She was kind of more curious than I think a guy's girlfriend should be. She wasn't, I don't want to say flirty, but it was just kind of creepy. She once sent me, well, she put a note in my box. It was all typed, so I would see the feminine handwriting, and it was uh, saying things like, uh, oh, we are kindred spirits. And who used the term kindred spirits in 1980, Vermont? No one did. And so I think she rather enjoyed watching me twitch. This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.